All right, limited partners, welcome to another episode of the LP show. And today we are going to be talking about the early days of Rover.com and how to build a marketplace business and really the technology and the engineering behind building a marketplace business with dear friend of the show, Phil Kimmy. So Phil, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, me too. Phil is the co-founder and director of software development at Rover, which uh, he started in June of 2011. And uh, as such, you you would have been a junior in college. I was just just finished my junior year of college. So did not did not return after that. Did not return as my mother frequently reminds me. <laughs> <laughs> many many fun conversations with Phil's family that summer. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I bet. I bet. Phil, you've gone on to, of course, grow the team uh, at Rover. How large is engineering and product now? All of engineering and product together, I think, including design and analytics and other things, are uh, around 200 at this point. Cool. Don't call it a unicorn, uh, but but uh, right on the edge. As as reported, Phil, of course, should not comment on this, but as many news outlets reported somewhere in that range, Phil has been named 30 under 30 by both Forbes and Inc. There were some pretty sweet pictures of you and a cute dog floating around the internet. Multiple cute dogs. <laughs> um, and of course, uh, Phil is a super close uh, friend of, of both David and I, and we are lucky to have him today. So Phil, I want to dive in starting Rover. We got to hear a lot of the Rover story from Aaron when we had him on for the dog vacay episode last season, but we didn't really dive into the first six months of the company. And this time period is particularly informative to a lot of our LPs who are working on a startup of their own in kind of that pre-product market fit era of, uh, of a startup. And so, you know, you got to work for real the Monday after startup weekend. So what was the first sort of work that you did? How did you plan where you were going to dive in and, and what were you kind of trying to prove after that? Totally. So uh, David can keep me honest here because he was he was there for much of, much of this. So um, well, so a little bit of background. I, I came back home for summer after my junior year of college, and I went to this thing called a startup weekend, which is a basically a weekend hackathon. So people pitch ideas on Friday, you work on them over the weekend, and then Sunday you pitch them to a panel of judges. Greg pitched this idea of Airbnb for dogs. So I walked up to him, said, "You know, I think I could build that. I like dogs. That sounds like fun." Worked on it over the weekend. Over the course of the weekend, I learned that Greg was did this professionally and I had come back from school and intentionally didn't you know find an internship or anything to do and for listeners to know Greg was Greg Gottesman the founder of Rover and at the time was uh, one of our partners at, at Madrona and uh, was a multi-time was and probably still is a multi-time startup weekend champion yeah <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah and I think maybe cheating a little bit as a board member but uh, <laughs> um, is, is now my co-founder at, at Pioneer Square Labs yeah so anyway so at the end of the weekend he goes you know Phil what do you think of doing this full-time and I was like, that sounds amazing. You know, it's summer, just very least uh, work on over the summer and see what happens. Uh, so I came in Monday. I uh, didn't actually start on Monday. We started on Tuesday. So I came in Monday, talked to, met with Greg, met with Aaron, which I didn't actually remember until uh, he told me later, uh, and David. And we worked out the details. And then on Tuesday, I brought my desktop computer in and set up in an office in the Madrona offices. So at the beginning, you know, the first thing I focused on, which I think now is pretty kind of expected, but the very first thing was set up CICD, so continuous integration, continuous deployment. I think, you know, if you're going to move quickly, that's kind of the basic thing you, you want to have under your belt. It's gotten a lot easier as well and has become kind of industry norm. This was relatively early days of AWS, so... Yeah, this was summer 2011. Summer 2011, yeah. So we got some infrastructure set up, very simple stuff, Jenkins for CICD and just uh, some basic EC2 instance type things. You know, the initial scope was basically... Airbnb for dogs. So literally it was, you know, homepage, search page, member profiles, we call it our listing page. And then, 
contact, messaging experience back and forth, and and a transactional engine to actually handle the booking and payment. And and did you feel like you needed to do all of that to sort of be able to get something off the ground, or were, were you? Did you ever think about like, oh, maybe we wouldn't handle payments, or we shouldn't facilitate messaging just yet, or did you said like all that actually needed to be in scope in order to do anything? So we we did initially start to have uh, some transactions occur, quote unquote, uh, mm-hmm. in the sense that I somewhat famously sat a dog through over in the very early days before we had messaging or actual booking capabilities that did quite a number on the second floor of Madrona offices at <laughs> <of> the time. <laughs> I think we talked about that in the, uh, in the main episode. But yeah, there were, there were a number of transactions happening after that startup weekend of people, because we had gotten some press for the startup weekend and people and just friends and family that we had in the area too were, were using it. And I think we did a pretty good job in those early days of... of having those transactions happen just so we could prove like, hey, this is something people like to do, even though it wasn't on the platform while you were building it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So we got to the point of having, you know, very, very rudimentary search and kind of profile experience and then a contact experience, but didn't actually have all the metadata, you know, uh, dates and dogs and pricing type calculations initially, but could actually get some volume flowing through the platform. Very, very minute amounts of volume, but mm-hmm. some demonstration of, of the basic concept. And so as you think about sort of the work that had to go into that era of the company, you know, what stuff necessarily required engineering to do? And what were some other things you were trying to prove that you were like, eh, you know what, there's, there's other ways to sort of get a good proxy for this information without actually having a dev team work on it? I think, you know, I don't think you, know, you guys at PSL now have, have gone to great lengths to try to you know, figure out how to kind of MVP your way to something viable. And I don't think we were as sophisticated about it at the time. You know, I, I think both because this kind of startup incubator type model was not then the norm to the same extent. And I think uh, also just because, you know, this was the first time I'd done it and the first time Greg had done it, right? It wasn't like this was a processized kind of uh, manufactured commodity in that sense. So, so I don't think we were thinking about it in those terms really. And I think and beyond that, a lot of the kind of, you know, landing pages and then testing via Facebook interest and stuff like that just had not, well, and to a large extent wasn't possible, right? Because this is an era before Facebook advertising was, I, I think there probably was some very limited, you know, yeah. notion at the time, but barely. And, and you know, the well, landing no page generator <laughs> type things. Certainly no, yeah, no, no mobile app. Rover didn't have a mobile app. I mean, I don't, I don't think Facebook's, you know, at that point, I think we'll talk about Dog Vacay a bit, but, you know, free in those days was the primary way you got people on Facebook. Um, so, so in other words, I think we just jumped in and started building stuff. I think, you know, for this type of marketplace, it's not, it is very, something viable is pretty far from where you start, you know, and so the and it kind of uh, demonstrate basic demand characteristics or ba- demonstrate that there is demand out there and then demonstrate there is supply. I think you, know, you can do that without building all the product, but you can't really have demonstration that's an end-to-end product without building something more substantial. Yep. Yeah, it makes total sense. And also, it's interesting thinking about every time a new business model is sort of made possible through technology, there's sort of this land rush of sort of the largest markets get it first, and then it trickles on down from that. And so we had seen Airbnb, we had seen the beginning of car sharing, but like there wasn't Uber for XYZ the way that there is today. And so you probably were in the clear sort of looking at it and saying, look, we're still pretty early in the era of uh, you know, on-demand marketplaces, 
like there's probably not that much validation work we need to do. There's a lot of available white space here to start this. Well, I, I think it was, you know, at this point it was really Airbnb was the model, not Uber. So it wasn't mm-hmm. really even on demand, right? It's mm-hmm. it's this kind of travel use case, multiple weeks out likely. Mm. Oh yeah. So it, it really predates Uber for X and it is, Air, it is kind of the Airbnb for X era. So this was, you know, Airbnb, I think at that time probably was kind of one to five billion type business. This is also an era before, you know, unicorns were ubiquitous. So, you know, at that time, Airbnb was, despite being small by modern standards or current standards, at the time that was a big successful startup. So, mm-hmm. and I think it would have been hard to demonstrate. I think Get Around had also been started at this point. I'm pretty Get sure. Get Around was definitely, yep. yeah. Yeah. And I mean, Airbnb, or I'm sorry, Uber would have existed, but it was totally different. Yeah. Early. Black car, yeah. So thinking, you know, we're we're talking now about sort of the supply demand characteristics. So I want to get into that. Like, what was harder to stand up, and what was harder to actually get on the platform? Was it sort of the the sitters or or dog owners? And Facebook ads are in their nascency or infancy. How did you go about go about doing that? Uh, we uh, so I think both are hard uh, in different ways, right? <laughs> you have to. Oh, we've got. Speaking of Greg, you want to do a cameo? Just popped in. We got the whole family. It's audio here. only, so you have to oh, say something. I was like waving. We're talking about the early days of Rover. Oh yes, uh, you're you're here with the. Oh, sorry, I'm just talking to the microphone. <laughs> well, you're here with the 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 the, uh, the reason that Rover exists, which is Phil. And I told him if Phil had had a proper summer job, <laughs> anyone wanted to hire him, then there would be no Rover. That's the. That's <laughs> exactly right. That's exactly right. So supplier demand. So I think you know in the early days of a marketplace, you have to balance the two. And I think uh, for us. We weren't initially sure where the supply would come from. We actually started out with this overnight boarding business as our first line of service, which is kind of what you think of as our primary or what is our primary business model, which is non-professional, um, although many are professional, uh, part-time, typically person who wants to watch dogs in their home you know, for a weekend here and there. Obviously, we have people who span the spectrum, but we didn't really know if there would be enough supply for that. So we actually pretty quickly, really before there was a a real business, we added overnight traveling services. So the notion there being there was already this concept of overnight traveling sitters who would come to your home and typically you would you could go to a pet shop and ask behind the counter and they'd have this, you know, book of, of business cards that you could just uh, rifle through. So we had that for the supply side initially to try to ensure there was actually going to be sufficient supply. But that's I mean, that, that's fascinating because like that's not an obvious like, oh, this is how we'll get them on the platform. Well, and really in retrospect, I'm not sure. I mean, on the one hand, you know, having when you're building a system like that, having multiple use cases or multiple service types forces some design decisions that make that you know at least possible. But in retrospect, that was a tiny fraction of the business for a long time. I and mean, we've made progress there, but even now it's a pretty underdeveloped segment. I mean, we, we really, for the first five services we did, um, especially the, especially traveling sitting, it was really kind of a Hey, let's apply all the same functionality to our as with our boarding business. And so, for example, one of the things we talk about now is for overnight traveling. Does it really make sense to have your search experience be location oriented? So, like our our search experience for both boarding and traveling overnight are very similar to Airbnb, right? Listings on the left, panable map on the right side. And if you're looking for somebody to come watch your dog in your home overnight, you really shouldn't care where they are, right? As long as they're willing to travel. And there, you know, there is some factor there because they're only going to actually accept the request if you are close enough to them that it's, right. you know, But that's not viable. relevant to the dog owner. Exactly. It's not relevant to the dog owner. So we should be, you know, ranking our results based on the sitter's propensity to travel. The But the dog owner searching for service, you know, it's really just not a, doesn't make sense. 
And so, you know, it literally was just a plug-in to our other service line. And only now are we coming back around to really focus on that as a discrete and differently structured service eight years later. So I'm curious, Phil, I mean, I, I lost touch with your whole side of the house of the business pretty quickly. But looking back on these early days from a technology standpoint now, as you were standing up all the tech that went into the platform, the payments, the messaging, the profile, the search, the homepage, A, which pieces of those like original, you know, lines of code that you written and services that you used are still part of Rover today, if any of them. And, and, and then conversely, are there any huge mistakes you feel like you made in setting up those services in the early days that really cost the company that you would have for sure do differently if you could go back now? Yeah, so I think, uh, well, to answer your first question, there's I don't know that there's anything, you know, the nature of code is such that much of the structure is still as it was uh, from the very beginning, but much of the actual, you know, lines themselves have changed in some way or another. Right, right. So I think much of the structure has persisted. We've had, we had the luxury of, frankly, you know, we can we can collectively pat ourselves on the back all we want, but I think, you know, we had something that worked, and to some extent we're lucky, and so it really is very similar. I mean, the the whole funnel is structured the same way. A lot of the data model is structured the same way. Um, uh, we still, until we recently are in the process of changing payment providers, but it was the same Braintree account I set up, you know, seven and a half years ago for the longest time. I still occasionally get somehow somewhere deep in PayPal system. I can't change my home address, so I still get the <laughs> some of the, like, you know, let's upsell them more services through PayPal, and, you know, as we do. Uh, many tens of millions of dollars a month through PayPal and like it's still just getting the letter at my parents' house. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, so m- much of it still is there. I think, uh, you know, there has been a ton of movement in the last 10 years, really, especially last five years on the web side, on the web technologies, you know, really uh, V8, Node, Chrome, you know, the, if you think about where web browsers were eight years ago, it was a very different environment. Yeah, we've been through like 15 or 18 front-end JavaScript frameworks since yeah, then. Yeah, exactly. So the front-end stuff has changed a ton, but the the underlying technology for the rest of it, uh, you know, it's changed some, but honestly, you know, MySQL, Postgres, Python, Django, like those things are pretty durable and haven't um, fallen out of favor in a way that a lot of the front-end stuff has. Was there anything easy to grab off the shelf when you were getting started where you're like, yeah, we're not going to build our own messaging system. We're going to use Layer or, you know, that probably didn't exist at that point. So was there any was there any nice off the shelf stuff? You know, I think our bias is or certainly my bias is always use third party things where you can. Yeah. You know, it, it, we're now at a stage where things are starting to get expensive enough that it doesn't necessarily make sense to always buy instead of build. But where possible, that's certainly my bias. I think in those days, you know, certainly for uh, credit card processing and especially storage vault, you know, that, that stuff's really unpleasant to do yourself. So that, that was relatively available at the time, but even that Stripe was not yet the dominant player. But anyway, no, for the, for the other things like messaging, I mean, now there's things like PubNub and certainly there's a lot of push notification services, but most of those emerged a couple years after. So we have our own things and that's for better or worse, you know, it's on the one hand, you get a lot for free when you pay for those, but also even just raw SMS costs now are pretty uh, shockingly huge. Mm-hmm. And so if we had another layer of indirection, there would almost certainly be, you know, three, four or five times more expensive than it is. And it's already pretty painful. You mean like using Twilio, Twilio instead we of... Use, we primarily use bandwidth, but... Hmm. So and I'm curious on the, the, the question of if there's anything that mistakes you made, like as you think back now like architecturally or service wise that yeah mostly architecturally i just um 
we've worked through a lot of these issues, but I, I think uh, what we're calling our booking engine or what, which is now, you know, eight years later, we're finally forming a team to own that from a platform perspective, which is kind of the core, we refer to them as conversations or, you know, conversations mm-hmm. and messages and requests, which uh, carry the metadata for a given transaction. And those pieces really haven't changed much. Um, there are a couple of things we did that were really egregious mistakes that to go from just as an inexperienced engineer, you know, um, to go from two services to five, we had to restructure some things, but only now are we really, we, we've paid down some of that tech debt, but I, but certainly only now are we actually forming teams to specifically own some of those core core components. If you were starting a mar- uh, marketplace business today, would you, you know, create it as a ton of tiny little microservices and have a hundred microservices? Or how do you think about what the right balance is there? Because I know that's come in and out of vogue a little bit. Yeah, I think, I mean, my, this is, my personal view, but I don't know that there's a lot of opinions on the subject and I'm not sure mine are especially well-formed. Um, but I've always been very skeptical of the services thing. Uh, and my, the more people I have come from other bigger tech companies or even equally, actually, especially equally sized tech companies that have gone really hard down the services path. I think it almost always ends up being a mistake. We, uh, we really have one big Python monolith and, uh, it is very easy to get your dev environment working. And when you talk to engineers internally who have worked other places, our environment's pretty consistently the easiest to get set up of anywhere they've worked. Um, you know, they can be productive quickly, which is really what matters. I think you know we're right now at the stage where we have to or should be starting to think about those things, or at least increasing modularity of the code base. So, just the the size of the code base is large enough that it is it probably does need some more explicit boundaries to be drawn within it. So, for a lot of reasons. But that's really interesting. It's only now that you're at. 200-ish people on the engineering and product in the engineering and product organization that you're now starting to feel like a modular service-based technology stack is worth it versus uh, versus being monolithic. Yeah. So I think think that comes down to, well, the, the rough rule of thumb that I've heard is kind of 50 people working on the same code base is probably about the threshold where you start to feel those pains. But I think... So things like contention for deployments, things like reducing the blast radius so that a given incorrect change of some kind impacts only some subcomponent of your overall product. You know, there's a bunch of benefits to be gained, but they all come at pretty great expense uh, in terms of increased complexity in how your system is deployed, as well as increased complexity in how different components interact. You know, if they can interact over a in-memory Python call, which is what they're doing in the case of Monolith, I think that's it simplifies a lot of assumptions you have to make. I think the the starting point, I've recently taken over management of uh, our platform group, which is basically the teams focused on some of these infrastructural components, not the actual true AWS infrastructure, but like some of these shared software components. And the big focus for me is just getting to take what we have and make it uh, fast and efficient without major modifications like going to services. Um, but increasing modularity then sets us up to later go towards services Uh, when we think that we're ready for that. Well, listeners, this is the perfect opportunity to introduce a new sponsor here on ACQ2, Quarter. Their new product, Quarter Pro, launched about a year ago and is already adopted by several Fortune 500 companies and some of the world's largest hedge funds and equity research departments. Yeah, this research platform is transforming the way qualitative public market research is conducted. Here's how Quarter Pro works. You can get every piece of first-party information from public companies all in one single place. That's live earnings calls with real-time transcripts, company filings, slide decks, and more. 
Quarter Pro has built a world-class user interface for this. Yep. Let's say you're an investor or a podcaster, and you've got the use case where you need to look up a company such as Novo Nordisk, Hermes, or Visa. You can open their platform and search Guidance or Market Outlook. Quarter Pro then immediately identifies all instances where a company has historically mentioned and discussed these topics in all of their IR-related communications. Or here's another pretty crazy thing they've done that's difficult to get anywhere else. You can actually search through literally every individual slide in Quarter's database, covering 9,000 public companies and millions of slides for any keyword mention based on Quarter's AI capabilities. This truly makes it easier than ever to conduct qualitative analysis of entire industry value chains and specific companies. So whether you're an equity research analyst, an asset manager, or an investor relations professional, this platform will help you increase your productivity through their live call, transcript components, AI-powered summaries, and a feature along allowing you to visualize the entire timeline and changes of specific slides throughout quarters. Quarter also offers their database as an API solution. This enables other companies such as trading and research platforms, as well as AI and LLM companies to build custom solutions and integrate this database into their offerings or add functionality on top of the data. Yep. To find out why leading companies globally are choosing Quarter Pro in their day-to-day work and to experience the platform firsthand, request a personal demo by visiting quarter.com slash acquired. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R, no E, Q-U-A-R-T-R dot com slash acquired. Or click the link in the show notes to get the personal demo from the Quarter team. Our thanks to Quarter. Well, I want to move us into sort of, uh, and we've been here a little bit already, but marketplace technology, you and I have kicked around this business idea a few times. And I, I think it was one of the things that originally made me think, oh, this would be a super interesting episode about building a white label marketplace platform. And you've made the point to me that with a business like Rover, there's so much specific nuance that is tailored for the use case that there's not actually value enough in, in generalizing it. And so like, how do, how do you think about the problem of, oh, there should totally be a white label marketplace service so anybody could start a Rover for X versus actually every single marketplace develops its own unique set of features such that that thing you know, wouldn't be customizable enough to be valuable? Yeah, I, I think the uh, there's probably subcomponents that could be really valuable and you've seen this emerge like in the form of, it was a company that eventually went out of business that was offering the service, and I think now Stripe also offers it, which is a uh, marketplace payments product where... You know, yeah, you, Stripe Radar, I think. Or no, um, uh, uh, I don't remember. I, I don't remember the, yeah, I don't remember what it's called, but uh, Stripe offers it, and other companies have offered it over time. But basically the idea that you take a $100 and you know subdivide it between the people delivering service on the platform and, and the platform itself... Stripe Connect. Stripe Connect. Yeah, so that, so that makes a lot of sense. And uh, there are pieces like that that can naturally be decoupled. But I think in the general case, it really tends to be vertical specific. So even for us, right, thinking about our on-demand dog walking product versus our browse overnight boarding product have very different just inputs and outputs, right? So what time do you want somebody to come walk your dog? Where is the, where do you hide the key? You know, what is the combination for the lockbox? That makes a lot of sense for the on-demand dog walking case. Those aren't really relevant information for the overnight boarding case, right? We're going to come to somebody's house and drop off your dog. And I, I don't doubt that you could build something, but I don't know that there's enough value add that you'd, you, know, you could imagine companies would launch on your platform, but certainly by the they time they get to a certain size, of it and yeah, they're going to graduate own. off of. And, you know, I think most companies, for it to work, you have to get companies to 
be small and medium and then grow on your platform and keep the pricing such that right. your value add exceeds the pricing. And I think that's hard to do in something where yeah. it's open source software. It's such a good point. It's, there. it's a huge fallacy in startups that you think, oh, we should make it really easy for people to start XYZ, like build this platform company that, you know, ultimately when your most successful customers have a business that's working, they move off of you. And I think it's really... Uh, Generally, it takes talking to an investor or uh, talking to a friend who's sort of been there before where that hits you like a ton of bricks for the first time. And you're like, oh, yeah, like that actually would be a you know material problem in our business. And you see that for us in all these big software contracts, you know, SaaS contracts. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, you're paying N engineers salaries per year to have some service. And you're like, you know, you're not going to be able to rebuild that thing with two or three people, but it's still painful because it seems like a ludicrous amount of money. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. What what are the I'm curious what what are the like areas where you used to be using a third party service and you've since decided at some milestone it made sense to bring it in house? Was it like analytics or analytics is a good example actually. We we used uh, Kiss Metrics for many years and we brought that mostly in house. Uh, we still use a bunch of you know all sorts of third party software to make it work, but yeah. it's um, the bolt you know the, the the key components of it are building dashboards in, in SQL. I remember we were using uh, Periscope for a long time, right? And we still are. We still are. But it's that's really a pretty broad for dashboarding. dashboarding solution that covers. Is that one of those things cases. that like clones your production database and makes it queryable? So it a, does. Do, I think that's one of those feature sets that makes a lot of sense at a slightly smaller size. Mm-hmm. Uh, Periscope does do that, and it's a really powerful capability. It you, know, you give it a relational database, and it will just mirror it into Redshift. But uh, we're past the point where that makes sense because the tables involved and you know size of so data is large. large enough that you can also point it at your own Redshift cluster, basically. Mm-hmm. Got it. Well, I'm curious. You know, you've had to build a lot of things in the last eight and a half years. Like, what are some things where, as you're building them, you think it's like going to be a total no-brainer that that this makes a lot of sense to build, and then ultimately you launch it and it's just a complete flop and it's counterintuitive to to what your initial conception was. That's a great example, I, or that's a great question. I should have, you sent me these earlier and I should have given that one more thought. <laughs> uh, so I think we've been fairly cautious. I, I'm sure I could come up with some examples if I, I'd probably need to think on a lot harder. Um, we've been pretty cautious about launching new businesses and new service lines, um, in part just due to team size. So I don't, I don't mm-hmm. think there are many examples where we've really gone way out of kind of the, the coloring book, as it were. You know, an example of this is we added daytime services and people were really working around our system to use our boarding service to book dog walking you know so yep. mm. a lot of the time we're literally just doing what the customer has clearly demonstrated through our platform they want to be doing on the platform right i think we've we've had a lot of attempts to do you know just the nature of doing an ab test driven consumer oriented business is you know if you're if you're feeling if you're really lucky and you have a really good hit rate maybe you hit 40 percent of six is a success rate right and 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 40 percent being is that search to book Oh no, I'm sorry. Oh, Being, the... uh, for running a given A/B test, you get oh, you know, I see. At best, forty percent. More typically, thirty percent are successful, and uh, oh. the rest are neutral or negative. I see. Got it. Um, so we've launched tons of features. I mean, that have you know flopped, and I think it's we've had varying levels of discipline about rolling them back. Hmm. Oh, because someone might be very excited about a feature, and even though it doesn't perform that well, you know, right. oh, it's there's hard to... qualitative reasons why it might make sense to keep using it. Yeah, exactly. And, it's, and you know, the qualitative thing sometimes it's pretty plausible. Sometimes it's People uh, struggle to depersonalize the features uh, mm-hmm. in a way that I think is a pretty important uh, thing for PMs to be able to do. I'm curious. Uh, one of the interesting parts of Rover's history, I think, is that we spanned 
two technological eras. You know, when uh, when Rover was started, as we were talking about a minute ago, it was web Just only. On web. There was no mobile app. Uh, and it was probably, what, two years into the business before there was a mobile app at all. And then now, fast forward to today, and I can't tell you the last time I interacted with Rover.com on a website. Uh, and, and you were running mobile in those early days as it was beginning. How did you think about translating Rover into the mobile environment and then getting adoption within uh, buy-in within the organization that this was the future? Yeah. So, uh, well, so it was not only mobile, it was not only web, it was desktop web. So yeah. one of our biggest metric improving events was rebuilding our core funnel to be mobile responsive. I mean, it was huh. you know, now that's kind of the obvious thing to go do is make sure you have mobile support where you wouldn't even think about not doing it. Yeah. But, uh, but this was you pull up com on Safari on your iPhone or whatever on your Android right. browser, <laughs> and it would just wouldn't even be and formatted for the screen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not not formatted zoom, well. Zoom, zoom, zoom. And yeah. so, there are kind of three things I think that actually I'll, I'll come back to your your mobile specific question, but at least my and this is also possibly my fallible memory, but you know I, I think there were three things that really led us. We had a big focus on marketplace efficiency, unit economics, which ultimately is what led us uh, defeat. Uh, dog vacay, but I think the three specific things we did were one focus on search algo, ensure you know maximize conversions and LTV by ranking uh, providers. Uh, number two was pushing messaging towards SMS, which causes a decrease mm-hmm. in response time, which is very strongly correlated with booking rate. And then number three was rebuilding the member profile page, that profile page to be mobile responsive. And I think you can really it's hard to tell right month over month but it it sure seemed like that was the that last one which was one that was never on my radar frankly was the one that really um pushed us interesting so not even shipping the app version of rover but just making profile pages for sitters mobile responsive on web to answer your original question uh, i basically went to aaron you know at this point it was maybe four or five four or five engineers and, and i was just like went to aaron and jason was like mobile app we need a mobile app everything's moving to mobile everything's going to be moving to mobile in the next several years hmm. uh we need a mobile app right and i want to work on it so you know that said i think even now the acquisition model tends to be web right i mean facebook ads are notoriously ineffective and expensive and so you know we, we spend a significant amount of money there but it's still hard to make it work mm-hmm. right whereas the web is you know you come in the door and you're already on the pl- on the play on the platform, like an intent-driven Google, you know, SEM, but yeah. also you know SEO, also other online, you know, word of mouth, right? You see a TV ad where you go, right? You probably go to the web browser first. Yeah, like the App Store is not the discovery channel. So I think you know you need both, and that was certainly always the intent is uh, for the sitters, for service providers on the platform. Mobile is really important, especially in the daytime services where you might actually be you know, not at a computer or even mm-hmm. near a computer when you're delivering services and then focused on the repeat case. So uh, dog owners who are, you know, like you, David, using the dog walking service or any of our other services overwhelmingly are booked through the mobile apps. But but that new customer acquisition is disproportionately. You still need the web, yeah. You still need the, and I think it always will be. I mean, that's just where people yeah. first investigate a product. And Well, it's like the, the framework we, we use when starting new businesses when we're trying to decide is it is it mobile or is it web and what's your initial vector is if it's something you're going to commit ahead of time to using multiple times per week, then you're willing to download an app. Otherwise, you're not. And so when you're looking for a dog sitter for the first time, of course, you're not going to go download an app to use it for mm-hmm. that one use case. But if it becomes clear like, oh, I'm making money through this thing as a sitter or, oh, this is a thing I do on a regular basis because it's part of my lifestyle, then of course, you would download the app. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So I foreshadowed something 
mostly because I wasn't paying enough attention and just spouted out search to book. But then I think you you talked about it a little bit. What are the different sort of KPIs? And I, I spoiling search to book is a big one. And why is that sort of the lifeblood of marketplace pa- platforms in particular, this one? Yeah, I mean, I think for any business, right, those, we focused on unit economics and the uh, the example so when maybe 2013, maybe 2012, uh, when we were competing with Dogvacan, they had a pretty sizable lead and really driven primarily by effective PR as well as uh, Facebook marketing. They had a pretty big lead in this. And on, honestly, Aaron would say, focus on unit economics. The classic example is kayak.com, where they had better unit economics because of better conversion rates, which in turn meant uh, they could pay more upstream on advertising as well as you know just generally grow the business faster because it, traffic on the site was worth more to them because they could convert that traffic exactly exactly and that's true so i don't think it's specific to marketplace businesses that you you know that unit economics focus so uh how efficiently do you convert it and then ultimately how efficiently do you maximize ltvs through you know the long range uh value of the customer but you know that is the lifeblood of, of product engineering right if you're certainly the offsite stuff will usually be marketing driven in some form or another but the thing you really can move and the thing that has the biggest impact in the long run the flywheel is that those uh, core on-site metrics so to answer your question though I think you know for us we always thought about it in terms of how many people do you get in the door how many people from getting in the door to to the first metric is is how many people do we get actually contact sitters and that is all sorts of uh, all sorts of things drive that so for example until a market reaches a certain uh, density it's mm-hmm hard to get people to actually contact a sitter because if somebody's if the nearest sitter is 10 miles away right you'll probably just bounce right and go to the commercial facility or call up your mom you launched basically everywhere that wasn't seattle in the united states all at once right we did yeah so initially i think we actually opened it to a couple markets uh to start or kind of had a nominal launch although it's not really that meaningful but whereas with uber which although it was still early it was still kind of on the radar with uber you uh need pretty significant density. Yep. I mean, in the early days of Uber, it was probably five to eight minutes was kind of the expected pickup time, and now it's like two or three. Yep. But if you if it was 30, right, you don't have a viable business. Whereas for us, if you're going out of town for vacation and you have to drive 30 minutes even uh, to drop your dog off, that's actually probably fine, better hmm. than the existing options. So you get back to the metrics. You know, for us, it's what are the, what's the probability you come to the site and contact somebody? Mm-hmm. Once you've contacted somebody or, you know, multiple people, what's the probability you actually turn that into a booking, you know, transact, uh, put dollars through the system? And then ultimately, the most important thing is uh, how many times do you come back? Mm-hmm. Because we lose money on the first transaction. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's the uh, only way we're successful is if we find you a sitter that you're satisfied with and want to continue to transact with on the platform. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so those things, you know, what, what is your CAC? What is your cost of acquisition? Uh, customer acquisition cost, and what's your LTV, right? And those are the certainly the metrics I'm sure you guys talk about a lot and ultimately define the unit economics. Yep. Yep, yep. I'm curious on um, on the tech standpoint. I think we talked a lot on the main Rover Dog VK episode about everything that goes into instrumenting and optimizing the um, transaction in the LTV funnel. But uh, one thing I, I don't know as much about, how much technology have you guys built for marketing uh rover you know as you've said spends a lot of money on google ads on facebook ads on other types of advertising and they're certainly amazing hulu spots right and uh, <laughs> and and there's a lot i think it's it's very poorly known out there in the tech community how much technology can improve that spending um, so how, how does rover think about that so i i don't know that i can speak to i mean you know aaron who you interviewed last time spent what, 15 years in, in display ad tech specifically. So 
he probably can give you a more nuanced view here, but we haven't really spent anything on internal time uh, in terms of technology investment. So we certainly, you know, inevitably, if you're doing any kind of bidding, you know, you're obviously Google behind the scenes is a technology platform, but uh, we're not doing anything ourselves from a technology perspective. I think it's been something that's always been on our radar and is, I think we'll inevitably end up doing something significant there. I think the industry trend you're seeing, I think, is more and more companies operate, certainly their kind of automated bidding type stuff, you know, SEM and any other things that lend themselves well to that type of automated bidding strategy tends to become a entirely engineering driven activity. We're not there yet. I think uh, the philosophy to date, but it, it, literally we talk about that every once a year or so is, is the question of is now the time to do that? Yeah. I mean, given the volume of dollars that you're putting through these platforms, hiring an engineer, even a team of engineers to help optimize that could see some ROI pretty quickly if you can make an impact. Yeah. I mean, the ROI, the numbers seem pretty hard to dispute, right? I think we're, uh, I don't know that I could come up with an exact we can do some rough back of the envelope math. I think the optimizations on the platform that impact all channels are still probably higher ROI than doing, you know, if we can make, depending on how much you think we can make our uh, SEM, say, you know, volume larger or efficiency higher. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, the onsite stuff just ends up being, mm. it, it flows to your direct, you know, a lot of our customers come in through word of mouth. Um, it flows to every channel equally. And it, uh, yeah, investments in increasing efficiency on the product amortize across both your paid and your direct traffic, rather exactly. than accruing just just to your direct tra- or uh, just to your paid traffic. Exactly, and I think so. I think there's definitely an opportunity there, and relative to our size, you know, I think I would be surprised if we doubled the team size and didn't have a team focused on that specifically. But uh, you know, where we are today, it's I think we're still at a place where you know some of these relatively small percentage improvements across the new customers we're acquiring can be a really huge impact uh, more than likely more than we could we could see in just improving the efficiency through automated bidding strategies and things like that yep okay two more questions here in marketplace technology one so i know of a feature that I assumed must be part of Rover. And of course, I haven't used it because I'm not a, a dog owner or a cat owner. But you were telling me, actually, no, like there's very data-driven reasons why sort of that continues to fall below the cut line. And that is uh, two people having two different logins to a single account, like two people who live in the same household. Like it kind of blows my mind that it's possible that eight years into a business, when you're making decisions in sort of a very logical, algorithmic way that 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 feature wouldn't be a part of it. It's like, of course, we co, you know, we both own this dog. This is ridiculous. We have two you email addresses. Dog, so you don't, uh, you don't know how this works, Ben. <laughs> so, David, no, actually, let's, I want to turn this around on David. How? Tell me about your actual experience arranging services for your dog. <laughs> like, well, I, mean, like, I don't the, know if I'm typical, but it's funny because I think I'm trying to remember. Phil, you might know. Was I? Was my Rover account the first uh, demand side Rover account? Was uh, I think I no number idea. one, or it was within the first D- like David, three. If 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 you believe this to be true, like, <laughs> you should just claim this as true. Yeah, okay, I'm gonna claim. You, you are I'm, sitting I'm there with it. your dog on your lap right now. I mean, I, we, can look, we can look. I, I, I can tell you, I am ID number one. Um, but I, I can't tell you what ID you are. <laughs> well, anyway, if you go query the database, you will see that that account has not been active probably since the early days of Rover because I just log in on Denny's account and we both use yeah. her account. Okay, but how about when you you know you go to pick up the dog, say or or whatever, right? Do you have the 
who who goes and picks up your dog or like oh we just both message through jenny's account and i just say hi this is david jenny's husband and i'll be there to pick up tanny and or and and for we mostly these days use walking uh for rover uh daytime walking and then it doesn't matter at all yeah so for well so i think the very common case is as you alluded to is most of the time people are getting a dog as a couple and uh, both people are involved in coordinating care so you know one person will book it but then the other person goes and picks up the dog and you have one sms channel right so we have one phone number you can have multiple devices signed in the same account, but then it's, you know you still have the little one-person photo. It's a very basic feature that is missing, and I think you know a generous reading would be Ben, as you put it, I think is uh, being very data-driven. It never bubbles to the top, but I think you know a less generous reading would be that I think we have well, a you know we grew the team a ton in the last year, so I we're 115 or something in you know, various technology roles and. A year ago, we were at like 45. So we, you know, wow. when you're at 45 or a year before that, 25 or you know, 15, you can't do a lot of these basic things. So the team's quite large now, but mm-hmm. a lot of those things have always fall, fallen below the cut line. And I think we'll are getting to a place where we'll end up doing them. But the point I'm trying to get at is, I think we have, for many reasons, uh, in part because we've been successful and, and lucky uh, to some extent in the initial service offering working. We've always done the small iterative things, uh, sometimes at the expense of the things that are kind of the obvious gotchas. Another example of that would be the uh, level of detail of the profile you can build for your pet is very poor. Basic care information stuff is kind of a free text field and so structured data. I mean, things that you think are kind of foundational components of this type of platform that I think are foundational. I mean, I don't, I don't, I actually think we have failed collectively to prioritize this stuff. And I think if you talk to Jason, who's our, uh, had a product for for a long time and there since about a year uh, less than a year into the company's life you know i think he also is frustrated by the fact that we've never built those things because it's like you know you always have this belief that if you you know if, if you do everything right right and make the customer experience really sing you have to believe that's going to show up in your growth numbers even if you can't correlate any individual given feature which is hard to go execute on hard to go put a team against when you have all these things where if you just move this number by one percent that that materially impacts the business and actually you know a a really good example of this um the impact that this can have when you're able to get to a size and resource standpoint where you can step back and do more ambitious product stuff i think is airbnb plus so airbnb plus launched gosh probably a year and a half two years ago uh and has been a huge revenue contributor uh to the is company. that the uh like events and activities thing no no, no that's, that's experiences. <laughs> that, experiences that has contributed less but airbnb plus is exactly filled to what you're talking about about more features about your dog's profile is uh more structured profiles uh for listings on airbnb where you can see you know here are the photos of this bedroom and then they send a person to each airbnb plus listing with a checklist to verify okay this house meets our plus criteria meaning it is of a sufficient level of you know uh, comfort and luxury or whatnot and has these features. And so then on the demand side is booking. You're like, oh, I trust more. I'm willing to pay more for this. And then the platform takes more. As someone uh, who, who is a super host but is not plus, uh, once they sort of uh, commoditize the value of super host, plus became this sort of really premium tier. Super host where, plus plus. Yeah, you could you can search by it. You know, it has a bunch of special features as a, as a very nice sort of like highly optimized layout that sort of would really fall on its face if the photos weren't A+, plus, but every single Airbnb Plus listing has these incredible photos. So I think even that is somewhat additive in the sense that it's like, 
you know, a, a value add service on top of their th- of, of the listing, which presumably they take a higher take rate and, you know, that kind of thing, which we, we have a service that's somewhat similar to that. I think the thing that we have started to do that's more kind of a structural change the marketplace design, I think is where the biggest opportunities are to, you know, with that type of thing, you can probably increase your take rate and kind of make, have, you know, higher LTVs through that mechanism through effectively pricing. We're about to convert our listing from regular to plus. I don't think it's a different take rate. I think it's just it lets it lets you charge a higher price. So everybody wins. Mm. So the platform's making more dollars. Platform makes charging more a higher well. place and the, and the the hosts there are making more dollars. Fair enough. Well so for for us I think it's the you know we we modeled our marketplace on Airbnb and I I think uh you know a lot of the experience especially for the overnight service uh, overnight services you know if the first person's not available it's just not a very good experience mm-hmm. uh, which I mean, frankly, in the Airbnb case, it's kind of the same thing, but they've moved away from that with Instant Book. But if you, you know, thinking back to the earlier days of Airbnb, you'd often contact people and you'd contact multiple people before you'd get a, book, a booking, right? And so I think that's the stuff where we have historically optimized for that next one or two percent through, you know, algorithmic improvements or small kind of CRO improvements and never gone back to the drawing board and said, you know, is the marketplace design here, right? I'll say as much as you're frustrated by it and, and Jason and the product team is frustrated by it, like it really does just go to show that your sort of intuition when you conceive of a product like Rover as a founder is, oh, well, it's certainly all these have to be structured fields and you have to be able to search by them and it's really important. I mean, there's a lot there that is sort of assumed necessary and yet here you've built an enormous business without any of that and it 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 does go to show that like you know it's it's worth challenging those assumptions and sort of chasing that next incremental growth because in a lot of businesses especially rover like for a lot of a long time there is that incremental growth in front of you you just have to kind of keep cost effectively chasing it yeah and i'm not even sure you know in the early days we could have done some of these different structural things i mean one of the i don't have any one of the things we've seen when we've tried alternative marketplace models is you know, you're in, implicitly putting more trust in the platform and less trust in the individuals, right? When, so when you do like a marketplace assign versus a marketplace assist. Exactly, because Rover is, you know, now the thing the entity you're trusting to find you that person, like the on demand product that David uses, right? You're totally putting your trust in Rover and Absolutely. yeah, we'll give you the same person wherever possible, but Rover is much more the the trusted entity there, whereas mm. with the browse based boarding business, you know, when Rover was a much smaller and and you know few, fewer resources kind of business I, I don't know that we could have jumped straight to it i just think now that we're at this point of maturity it's uh, likely that's the place we'll head it also has to, to do with how commoditized and uh, versus unique is the supply side and so in the case of uber and david we talked about this 110 times on the show but <laughs> you know i don't care what black prius picks me up you know i'm going a mile or two miles or whatever, it's raining, I just need to get there and it's kind of irrelevant who, you know, who the service provider is. And in the case of Rover, like, oh my God, I'm handing over my baby and like, Absolutely. you are a well, unique and, also, and special and, and thing and there's, But there's also different levels, you know, I think Phil, you're getting this point. Walking. Between walking, much less like that. walking, I yeah. want somebody who's not gonna let Tanny run away and yeah. is basically confident, but you know, I don't care what, what the home they live in looks like. Whereas boarding, you know, where I'm, Tanny's going to live right. for a few days this place. I care a lot about what the home looks like. And what other dogs are going to be there. Yeah. yeah, different service offerings dictate what type of business model you can have or what part, type of marketplace model you can have. Absolutely. Yeah, and you can just, you can find uh, a good number of those kind of, you know, uh, the, the, what is it, the inverted triangles type, you know, MBA models. The conjoined online. triangles of the success. The conjoined triangles of success. <laughs> you know, the, you, can, you can find a lot of kind of marketplace design 
framework type things uh, out on the interwebs. Well, Phil, one, one other question in this category. Let's say you're meeting with a technology team who's building a marketplace today. What advice would you give them out of the gate? I don't know that there's a ton of stuff I would advice I would give that's specific to marketplaces. I mean, I think mm-hmm. uh, most of the same fundamentals apply. I think for the marketplace piece in particular, I'd probably, having talked to a bunch of marketplace people early on in a marketplace business, I think a lot of the time people go out with too much product. Mm. Like I, I would, I think we went out with a pretty lightweight MVP and I think that's definitely the right place to start. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wholeheartedly agree. <laughs> <laughs> I also think you need to uh, start with a very narrow customer segment and customer use case. Mm-hmm. You know, we've we're now eight years later, and we just launched a grooming product, right? Which is a very different product than the overnight boarding product we started with. But yep. you know, solve. There's a lot of there's a lot more to do that's non obvious when you're first getting started for each of those services to make them uh, high quality. So I would say narrow your focus. Uh, where a lot of people try to do these big broad things, and you're like. You know, they and you hear them say things like, oh, you know, well, we're just going to add this feature and this feature and this feature. And you go like either each of those features is really not going to be actually very good or you're going to be looking at, you know, years of kind of sitting in your, you know, little studio building stuff and not actually out having customers have your product. Yeah, I just want to highlight this. Like, Phil, you are so right, especially now being an investor focused on specifically on marketplace businesses. Uh, this is the number one mistake is overbuilding the product uh, to start. The The most recent business we funded, they built a product uh, and then realized that the whole system, the whole market would work better if everybody just transacted on WhatsApp. So they basically trashed the product and like it just runs on WhatsApp, you know. Uh, and another one of our companies we're working with is, is pivoting their product right now. And we keep, you know, every every week when we meet with them, you know, basically the conversations are much more, you know, what can we not do versus what can we do and how can we take the core of this market and what's already happening out there and just strip away to the bare, bare, bare minimum of what this product is. Yeah. I think there's often, and it's not just marketplaces, right? I think it's any software oriented technology businesses, a desire to keep adding features um, because, you know, Oh, wouldn't it be cool if we do this or that? And it it really, you know, uh, if a customer is spending five minutes with your product, they're only going to interact with a very tiny subset of your feature set. And so you're much better off usually improving some thing that 80% of people interact with that is really, really core than the things around the edges that are more and more functionality. Well, with that, Phil Kimmy, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, guys. LPs, if you like this episode and uh, you want more people to, I don't know, also be LPs so we can find more fills of the world. Feel free to uh, to share on social media, tell your friends, and uh, David and I will uh, we'll see you next time on our, our next main episode, which I think will be the Zoom, Zoom IPO. Yeah. And if that's already out, then it will be the Slack direct listing. Yeah. Can't wait. So, all right. Talk to you next time. Bye, guys. See you, Phil.